5 starts, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is God's holy and inspired word. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when you depend upon something to do a certain task for you that it was never meant to do, right, and it wasn't designed to do that task in the first place, odds are it's going to fail miserably and sometimes even spectacularly. For instance, if you are at the airport, uh, you'll notice at the airport, you'll, you'll see a luggage cart, a luggage cart. They're, 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 these luggage carts are meant to hold your luggage so that you could push them to the baggage check or maybe even if you get the clearance uh, all the way over to your gate so that you don't have to hold on to them for that long and your arm isn't going to get tired uh, while you're waiting. That's what they're meant to do. These, uh, these, these luggage carts, they're meant to hold luggage so that you can wheel it from point A to point B. Uh, but uh, don't ask me how I know this, but somehow I do that if you ever get the urge to sit on top of the cart, on top of the luggage cart, and maybe ride it like a skateboard, uh, the luggage cart is going to flip over, and so will you, and your Cinnabon is going to be all over the ground. Because the cart was never meant for you to be riding it like a skateboard. The cart was never meant to be used like that. So too, the people who Jesus is speaking to here had a kind of dependence upon the law of Moses to make it do what it was never meant to do. They depended upon it for their righteousness. They depended upon it for their sanctification. They depended upon it for their right to stay in the land of Israel. They depended upon it so that they can maintain control and take ownership of the temple. They depended upon it for this life, and they depended upon it as an end in itself for the age to come. They had an expertise on the law. They knew it very, very well. There were even multiple schools at that time in the law of Moses so that they can study it in in many different facets, a a multifaceted way of studying it through multiple angles so that they can know it, so that they they can live it out as best as they possibly could. They knew it so well that they even used it as their very standard when they accused Jesus of blasphemy for saying that he, or even insinuating that he is equal with his father. Take a look at verse 18. It'll say that very thing. They look at Jesus and accuse him of breaking the law that they so dutifully are supposed to follow. And just as a review, all throughout this chapter, Jesus has been taking them to task in expanding upon his claims with equality, to, to equality with his father. And this very last thing that he mentions concerns their understanding of the law of Moses the very thing that they're supposed to have a direct expertise in, in the law of Moses. Jesus challenges them to their understanding of the law of Moses. Jesus shows them that the problem, uh, really, when you come right on to it, is that they trusted in the law in a way that it was never meant to be trusted in in the first place. They trusted it uh, in it in order to do a number of things, uh, in or, in, including charge Jesus with blasphemy 
but we'll see that they were sorely and ironically mistaken. So we're going to look at this passage this evening with this as our going theme as it's written in the bulletin, that Jesus' final words to his accusers reveal that they are actually the ones who are being accused of their neglect of the law that they are supposed to properly follow. And along these lines, we'll be following uh, this theme with these, uh, these three uh, points, as I typically put, the accusation, the writings, and finally, the verdict. So when we start with our look at the uh, accusation, we come again to the first part of verse 45. Take a look at, at it with me. Jesus said, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Now, this uh, strikes us at, at first glance as, as, as an odd thing to say, because if you've been paying attention up to this point, you would notice uh, that Jesus is the one who uh, formally is on the stand here. He's the one who's been accused of blasphemy in the middle of the chapter, as I referenced to, to it uh, a little bit earlier. But now he says this, when he says this, he insinuates that the accusation is actually on them. This is what he insinuates. In, in, in other words, the accusation now has taken kind of a 180-degree turn from its point of origin. Originally, it came from them. It came from these religious elites themselves, and now it's aimed at them. It came from them, now it's aimed at them. So the table is turned. Uh, but I'd like to think for the, just a little bit about this and kind of turn up the volume on what Jesus is saying here. Because if you think about it, not only is the accusation itself now taken from the hands of the religious elite and pointed at them, I'll even say that a version of the very same thing that they are accusing him of is po- pointed at them as well, being equal with God. I say that because everyone and anyone who wants to work their way into the kingdom has to assume the role of God. Anyone who, who, who thinks that they can control the number of God's elect by being righteous in themselves automatically assumes and they think that they are powerful enough in and of themselves to save themselves. They think that they are powerful enough to protect themselves and to perfect themselves unto glory. Only God can do that. We know that only God can do that. It's one of those uh, kind of obvious but not so obvious truths God is the one who maintains the exclusive right to save. God is the only one who maintains the exclusive right to welcome anybody into his kingdom. We don't seize the grace of God and compel it by our works. It's God's job to give it to us. And more than that, it's also his pleasure to give it to us, right? It's his ple- something that he's pleased to do. We don't seize the grace of God by our own strength. That's God's job to do this. But regardless of that, the accusation that's now turned on them won't come from Jesus himself. And this, of course, is what he says in this verse. Not because he's not able to accuse them. Uh, We know that. Uh, Nor because he doesn't have the opportunity to do this. He already said in verse 26 that all authority to execute judgment has has been given to who? The Son of Man. And it's not as though there isn't enough judgment uh, to go around I think he says this for a couple of reasons. Number one, he says that he is not going to accuse them before the Father because that's not what his mission was. 
He had already stated what his mission was in John 3, verse 17. The Son of Man doesn't come in order to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's his, his task. He, he's not going to accuse them before the Father. He, he doesn't have to, and so it won't come from him. But number two, uh, it's because here for rhetorical effect in this present situation, we can say that he's allowing room for someone else who will accuse them before the Father. He goes on to say in that very verse that there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. And just as the first half of the verse would strike them as odd, so too the second half should strike them as odd. You mean to say this Moses on whom we have set our hope is the one who is going to accuse it? Wait, wait a second. You mean the Moses, the premier prophet of all prophets in the Old Testament, perhaps maybe overshadowed by Abraham himself? You mean to tell me the Moses who mediated between God and his people in Exodus 32 with the golden calf? That, is gonna, that guy is going to be uh, accusing me before the Father, the Moses who gave God's law that in it, Deuteronomy 30, it says that if we live by this, if, if we obey this law, then we will live. That Moses? You mean the Moses in John chapter 9, verse 28, who, say, who they bragged to be his disciples? That Moses? Yes. Yes, it is him who is going to accuse uh, them before the Father in the original language. It's very, uh, it's, it, it, it hits you a little bit harder. It literally says uh, that there is one who is accusing you before the Father. So it's a participle. It's a present on, ongoing act. Even though they have set their hope on him, which, by the way, is distinct from belief. If you take a look at verses 46 and 47, When Jesus asked that, how will you believe? It's a different thing to believe than to set your hope on. Setting your hope on is is kind of turning your belief to 11. Uh, It's far, far more than just merely believing. They've set their hope upon him, though he presently accuses them before the Father. And if they've even cared at all, they'd be stunned. But they don't. And so Jesus goes on to say that there is a particular way, there is a particular uh, manner in which Moses will accuse them and is accusing them before the Father, and it's right underneath their noses this entire time. This brings us to our second point on the writings. The writings. Um, Accusations were commonly given in written form then, just as they are now. And Jesus says in the next verse, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And by this, of course, we know what what he means. He primarily means uh, the writings of Moses and the giving of the law of God. What he's saying to them about the writings is a number of things, mainly about the intent of the law. Uh, Firstly, I think he's saying that these uh, writings, that the writings are the very thing that Moses, their hero, is using in order to level his accusation against them in the first place. Moses, of course, was the principal writer, the principal editor of the first five books of the Bible. He had a direct hand in the formulation of the beginning of portions of the Word of God. Uh, Moses set the trend for all Old Testament books that follow afterwards. And the one thing that these writings do, if nothing else, is accuse. They accuse. They are writings 
uh, that demand a standard for us. And if you don't live by that standard that they demand, the all-knowing and the all-seeing God will know of your guilt. That's what these writings do. They are, uh, they are accusatory, if nothing else. The law will accuse you of this. What the law does is it sets a gauge for us so that we will know exactly who we are in light of it, which is to say that the law is firstly meant to expose our hearts for what they truly are. And the intent is that you would admit your guilt. We would admit and acknowledge our guilt toward God. So firstly, Jesus is implying that these writings are meant to point to our guilt so that we would acknowledge it. Secondly, when Jesus is speaking about the writings of Moses, what he means is that you are not supposed to be left to your own guilt. Yes, they accuse, and they, uh, uh, they, they, they point out our, our faults, our defects, our sins, our transgressions, but these writings are not supposed to leave you in guiltville. They are to, uh, to, to point us beyond ourselves because it exposes us as inadequate to give ourselves a standing with God. God never leaves us without a mediator or without a substitute, to absorb our guilt and to take the wrath that's, that's justly due us. Uh, think of this uh, in the latter portions in the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy. You get a recap of a, lot, of a lot of this in the sacrifices. Remember those? Uh, think of the priesthood. Uh, think of, uh, of the things of the tabernacle. Think of the feasts of Israel for, for, for a moment. These are in the law of Moses. These are commands that are put in the law of Moses. Now, what's going on here is that God not only points out your guilt, but he also provides a substitute. As a matter of fact, he demands a substitute so that you wouldn't be left in your guilt. It's meant to point to your substitute. This is what we call in Reformed theology as the first use of the law. The first use of the law. Uh, That the law is a mirror. The law is a mirror that exposes our guilt and it points us to Christ. The law shows us who we are in and of ourselves and it points us to Jesus. It points us away from, our, from, from ourselves. However, if you just take a look at the mirror itself and notice all your defects and you just stand there and not do anything about it, what's going to happen? Those defects are not going to go away by themselves. The law is a mirror that exposes our guilt and points us to Christ. But if you don't follow where the law tells you where to go, you will only stay in your guilt. So secondly, these writings that he speaks of, when he says, he wrote of me, these writings are meant, uh, mean to say that the law was meant to direct you to Jesus. And thirdly, he means that so long as they haven't acknowledged this, uh, they've been reading it wrong. Because of that, they've been acting as their own savior. Because of that, they've been acting as their own substitute. So long as they haven't acknowledged all this. The way that they read the law of Moses needs to be changed, in other words, to include Jesus as the subject. And as long as they haven't been reading it, and as long as as they have been reading it, and, and not recognizing Jesus in it, now that he's right in front of them, they stand under the very accusation of the very law that they have set as their very hope. So according to Jesus, according to Jesus, 
Any reading of Moses, or I'll amplify that even more with the rest of the New Testament, any Old Testament reading, for that matter, must be concluded with Christ, or we're reading it wrong. Galatians 3, verse 24 says that the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11 Paul says, now these things, he's speaking of the things that happen in the Exodus, particularly the, uh, the parting of the Red Sea and, and the, uh, the, the destruction of the Egyptian army and m- many of the things that follow. These things happened to them, the people of Israel, as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Every law, even the very law of God, starts with the phrase, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt. That's redemption language right there. That's, that's, that's redemption language. The, the bringing you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, out of the, the place of slavery. Redemption happens uh, in terms of re, re, the history of redemption. It happens before the giving of the law. And if they would only see this, if they would only see and prioritize the graciousness of God first, If they would prioritize this first, they would love his law because it points to a savior, a savior that they want to crucify. So brothers and sisters, if you're the type who would avoid the Old Testament, specifically the law, if you're the type to avoid uh, these things in the Old Testament, and, and by the way, uh, not a few people who I've spoken to are the type to, they will admit to me that they avoid the Old Testament because they have a wrong view of the law, a view that parallels that which the religious elite take. If you're the type to avoid the Old Testament, know that the law, when it's properly read, points to Jesus. It points away from your ability to keep it and towards the ability that that, that Christ has. Matter of fact, It points toward the joy that it brings Christ to keep it for you. And the Spirit of God works upon your hearts to love the things that God loves. He gives gives us a motivation to keep it as well. Moses speaks of Christ. And the religious elite are told to repent of their denial of this. The writings are to them the thing that only accuses because they see the law as an end in itself, when in fact it points to Christ. Uh, Romans 10, verse, uh, verse 4, for who is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. The law is not an end in itself. It points to Christ, who is the, who is the end of the law. The writings speak of Jesus, and these people deny him. And so we have the accusations, we have the writings, and now we look to the last point on the verdict. The verdict. Uh, we read in verse 47 to see the verdict. That's, it's virtually, it's really implied in this uh, question. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And the truth is they don't. And they won't. They don't actually believe the writings of Moses because they read him wrong. And they refuse to read him correctly in a way that points to Jesus. So according to Jesus, they read him wrong even though they claim to be his disciples. And because of this, they won't believe 
in the words of Jesus, and so the verdict for them lands squarely upon their guilt. Lands squarely upon their guilt. And if you think about it, there's a particular grief and sadness about their guilt that, in a way, if you think about it, transcends the grief and sadness of an otherwise ordinary person who rejects the Lord Jesus. Now, both are indeed sad, But there's a distinct feeling of pity and remorse that we feel towards someone who wants to be their own savior in a way that doesn't exactly apply in the same way for, say, a godless unbeliever. In other words, there's a double regret that goes on in our hearts when we see people like the one who Jesus is speaking to who want to be made good, by their own works. For them, uh, there's some sort of recognition of sin and misery. Uh, For them, uh, there's some sort of guilt that they harbor. Uh, For them, there's a concern that they have for their souls. And for them, they have something of a desire to do something about it. And so what do they do? Well, they do what seems most natural to them. Uh, They do what seems to make most sense to them, to be the best person that they could possibly be. And hopefully, maybe, they'll be forgiven. And hopefully, maybe, they'll go to heaven someday. There's a particular grief and pity and, and sadness of this kind of life that really is entrapping uh, that sees the law as an end in itself. It's a, it's a thing of pity. I recently spoke to a man who was doing just that. And what happens is that he couldn't bear under the weight of, of the, the myriad of inconsistencies and the guilt of doing this for very long without retreating into his own self-made religion that is made up in his own mind. A fallen man, in other words, can only live in that guilt for so long without either abandoning that program entirely or justifying themselves by yet taking another program that runs parallel to it. One can only be their own savior for so long until they see the myriad of inconsistencies and the sin that they bring to themselves. So there is a pity about this that I think we should have. But the words of Christ stand out among all the other religions of the world, especially the ones that are self-made, that are self-fabricated, that we retreat to in our own minds, in that God has accomplished his plan of redemption in Christ, and that he transforms our hearts to love the things that he loves. It's not that we love out of fear, it's that we fear out of love. And he's done this through the law of Moses, when it's rightly seen in the light of Christ that it points to us to the Savior. Moses and Jesus don't speak contradictory things. They speak to the same need that we all have, which is to be justified in Christ so that God would smile upon us as his very sons who are clothed in the righteousness and in the life and the death and the resurrection of his dearly beloved Son. Romans 8 verse 3 says that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law 
might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This gives rise to this relationship, this correspondence. Take a look at verse 47 that's there. Between the writings of Moses and the words of Jesus. The one, the writings of Moses are already there. They're already there on stone. They're already there on paper, on parchment. They're already there. It's all over and done with. In other words, we already stand accused under the law of Moses. And we now need the words of Christ whom Moses has continually alluded to. And now he brings his words in his ministry and his doing and his eventually his dying and rising from the dead. He brings what the words of fulfillment. He brings the word of fulfillment. Grace, the comforts of the gospel are accomplished in Christ and sealed to you by his spirit. John 1 verse 17 says that the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And it's this Jesus who was prefigured in the law of Moses and given to us definitively when the fullness of time had come. These people rejected Jesus. These people rejected Jesus and his words of expansion of who he is They prefer to be their own savior instead. And by doing this, they stand under the accusation of Moses, whom they ironically intend to follow. So what have we seen? We've seen that Jesus' final words to his accusers reveal that they are the ones who are actually being accused of their neglect of the law that they are supposed to properly follow. And I'll leave us, brothers and sisters, with just a few applications from this passage. Uh, Firstly, Take comfort in knowing that you will never be accused before the Father. Uh, Take comfort in knowing that you will never be accused before the Father. There's times, in other words, that we can look to ourselves, we can look at the the law of God, uh, we can take inventory of of the person who's, who's in the mirror and realize that there is a lot of unfinished business in our hearts. There's a lot of sin, in the words of Paul, that remain in our members. Uh, It's very easy for us to do this. But if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, he's accomplished this redemption for you. He's taken all this accusation upon his shoulders. You're his and he's yours forever. If you're in Christ, you're his and he's yours forever. The the, the, The writings of Moses are for you to be read to clarify where your love is supposed to be directed. That is, Now that you have been redeemed in Christ, the penalty of the law will never be put on your shoulders. It will never be yours in this age or in the age to come. And so we read the law as a thing, tell us how to live the Christian life, and that the worst part of our punishment that was due to us has fallen upon Christ, upon the cross. He's our advocate. He's our mediator. He's the one who has died and has risen again for us. Everything that would accuse us fell on him. Uh, Isaiah 53 says that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. There will never be a time in your life where you, ever, you, you will ever be accused before the Father anymore because of the finished work of Christ. So take comfort in this. Secondly, pray for a desire that others would not be accused before the Father likewise. Pray for a desire to well up in your hearts that other people 
will also likewise stand before the Father unaccused because of the work of Christ. This is an evangelistic call based upon this passage. That is, if the religious elite are accused before the Father and Jesus is saying these things so that they would repent, how much more should that fall upon us? How much more should that make us want to apply this to others? Brothers and sisters, uh, you have an in with other people that I will never have. You have an in with other people uh, that I will never have, Pastor Ben will never have. And if they're not in union with Christ, they, they stand under God's law. They stand under the law's accusation, the, the, the law's condemnation. We're to give them the gospel of Christ so that by faith they can come to a knowledge of him and a love for him in his law. So pray for a desire to well up in your hearts that others perhaps think of the people who you work with. Pray for a desire that that person, that man, that woman, would likewise never come under the law's accusation because it's paid for them in Christ. Pray for that desire earnestly and pray for it fervently. It's an evangelistic call from this passage. Thirdly and lastly, read and meditate upon the Old Testament confidently, uh, knowing that Jesus is at the center of it and is at its very end. Read and meditate upon the Old Testament confidently, knowing that Jesus is at the center of it and at its very end. It's always been God's plan to redeem his people in Christ. It's always been his plan, and we need to get used to reading this in all of Scripture, in all of Scripture. In fact, we're learning how to do this uh, in the book of Jeremiah with Pastor Ben's sermons. Uh, we're, we're, learning, we're, we're learning how to go about doing this, how to see Christ in all of Scripture. He's teaching us how to do this uh, Sunday after Sunday. Take inventory of not only exactly how, what he says, but how he says it. How, take inventory of how to see Jesus in the book of Jeremiah Christ is at the center of this wonderful book, and he's at the end of it. This is also the case with every other book of the Old Testament. His plan for you in, in, in Genesis, his plan is for you in Genesis just as it is in the Gospel of John. Moses and Jesus don't contradict each other, so you can read it confidently, knowing the presence of Christ in all Scripture. So take comfort in knowing that you'll, you'll never be accused before the Father Pray for a fervent desire that others, perhaps the people who you work with, your friends, your relatives, your neighbors, would likewise not come under that accusation and read the Old Testament confidently, knowing that Jesus is at the center and at the end of it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do 